I'm Michael Howie, and this is a Defender Radio Special Report. As you may be aware, following more than 45 suspected bites and scratches by coyotes on people at Vancouver's Stanley Park, the Ministry of Forest, Lands, Natural Resource Operations and Rural Development of BC has decided to kill up to 35 coyotes in the park. This has been a very difficult few weeks for all of us at the Fur Bears and everyone involved in this ongoing saga. I have been speaking a lot with Leslie Fox, our executive director, and we've been pumping out as much content as we can to update people, provide accurate information, and provide ways for people to participate or, or use some of the large emotional response to this for good. As such, we decided to record a conversation between the two of us that more or less covers what the Fur Bears has done since December 2020 when we became aware of the situation through to this week following the Labor Day long weekend. There is a great deal of information that's going to be talked about and most of it can be found at thefurbears.com and we'll also have links in the show notes to some of this. Now this conversation won't be for everyone. This is an upsetting subject uh, and we will be discussing very difficult realities. That said, because this has been such a difficult process, we are identifying the need for grieving, and that is a process we're all going through right now in our various ways. To try and offer some level of support, I reached out to a friend of mine, Stephanie McMahon, who is a registered psychotherapist qualifying that has a Master of Arts in Counseling Therapy. She's certified compassion fatigue specialist through the Traumatology Institute and EMDR trained therapist. And what separates Steph and maybe makes her the ideal person to speak about this is that she is also a certified wildlife rehabilitator and has dealt with some of these types of issues before, both personally and professionally. So if you'd like to listen to that, but not listen to the first part of the conversation, go ahead and skip your podcast player to 4830. And that's about when that interview should be beginning. Again, I want to thank everyone for reaching out to us, for for participating in being upset about this, in the grieving process, and know that we at the Fur Bears are working tirelessly, and our goal is to try and make sure this never happens again. So coming up now is Leslie Fox, Executive Director at the Fur Bears, talking with me a bit about the history of this the saga of the coyotes in Stanley Park in the last year. And following that at approximately 48.30 is Stephanie McMahon speaking about grief for animal advocates. Well, let's start at the beginning. The first bite we heard about in Stanley Park, or the first engagement we heard about in Stanley Park, was December 2020. Uh, from that point, I mean, is there, can you, can we, you and I collectively summarize what has happened from that point to this point, keeping in mind that it is entirely possible and probable that this started long before December 2020? Definitely, it started long before. Um, so yeah, so I, around December, and then I think into January, we started to become aware there was some media reports, you know, about um, negative coyote encounters in the park. And we, mm -hmm. in January, I believe, wrote an open letter to the parks board outlining our concerns as it related to open garbage cans, uh, ineffective signs. And so we can talk a little bit more about signs and some of our comments about the signs, but there's some issues related to science and sort of rural education. And um, additionally, you know, feeding and the lack of not, uh, feeding wildlife bylaws specifically. And I know Sydney, um, one of our colleagues had gone to the park to take photographs and we had shared some of those photographs. So just here are pictures, you know, of where things are and what things look like. And um, we sent that off to Parks Board and to date uh, have not received a response. Yeah, I think that's important to point out. So that letter was sent on January 22. <clears throat> Excuse me, everyone. My voice is going a little bit from all the talking the last few days. Um, and that, that did go out January 22. I'm looking at it right now. And there was three primary points that we made. The first was highly visible, multilingual and graphic based signage regarding feeding and the consequences both to those who feed and to the animals, which is what we are seeing now. Uh, we said waste receptacles should be upgraded to be wildlife resistant, and that is a number of the garbage containers are just 
everyday open garbage containers. And while we don't believe coyotes were eating from them, we do know that it attracts wildlife that coyotes will follow. Um, and a commitment to actively enforcing bylaws related to feeding in the park. And I think we can even then skip ahead because there's a lot then of us sort of checking in and trying to get some more information. Uh, I believe there was a couple of FOIs where we found that there was no no feeding across the board from any agency, no enforcement of feeding related regulations, uh, which was a big important part. Uh, but then we kind of come towards spring and summer when things start to intensify and people are outdoors, they're visiting the park more, and we're getting more frequent uh, engagements on this. Um, at that point, what else were the fur bears tackling in terms of trying to keep this issue present? Yeah, so you're right, things intensified. So we kind of, um, I believe it was March where we started to learn more about just structure, government structure and understanding jurisdiction. And Stanley Park is very, very complicated. So to explain it, we learned that Stanley Park is actually federal land. It's leased by the city of Vancouver. We know that wildlife management is a function of the BC government, specifically falling under the Ministry of Forest Lands, Natural Resource Operations and Rural Development, otherwise known as FLINROD. And then there is also the Ministry of Environment, where you would find the BC Conservation Officer Service, who becomes involved with wildlife related issues, but only related to public safety. And then of course, the municipal component being the parks board themselves, who are essentially the day-to-day -day operations. And so getting our heads around all of that, certain things started to become apparent. One of them was um legislation as it relates to wildlife feeding and this is really important so for a long time you know we've we've advocated that you know feeding wildlife is not good for wildlife you know so it changes mm -hmm. their behavior it brings people into closer contact with wildlife and essentially leads to all kinds of poor outcomes and so we learned that the city of Vancouver actually didn't even have a no feeding wildlife bylaw, either at the city of Vancouver or within Parks Board. And there's a distinction. So there's bylaws in a municipality. The city has their own bylaws and then Parks Board has bylaws that relate to parks. And that so Parks Board is in charge of those bylaws. So you kind of have to hit two things. And so we worked with Councillor Pete Fry from the City of Vancouver alongside Sarah Dubois of the BCSPCA. And in March, uh, we were effective in delivering a presentation to City Council who unanimously put through a no feeding wildlife uh, bylaw approval. So the bylaw is, is still being drafted, but that got put through. And we did send communications to the Parks Board outlining our concerns. Um, and again, no action happened. And so, um, you know, certainly I think that was a real big concern for us. Around the same time, there were two coyotes that were killed by the BC Conservation Officer Service as they were suspected of being involved in a number of bites and attacks. Fast forward to July, uh, we still have no bylaws or information coming from the Parks Board. And we would also see the BC Conservation Officer Service kill four more coyotes uh, that were presumed to be involved in, again, a number of bites and attacks. So, um, and then, you know, again, sort of fast forward and we have more incidents. And, and I know that there's a lot of, um, I think emphasis put on the BC Conservation Officer Service as it relates to enforcement and killing coyotes. But in this situation, it's, you know, really falls on the parks board um, as it is about the operations of the overall park. And while the BC Conservation Officer Service can certainly enforce the Wildlife Act in that there is a provision under the Wildlife Act 
um, it is an offense to attract dangerous wildlife. So there is a mechanism there in which the BC Conservation Officer Service can ticket uh, for feeding offenses. It's really unrealistic to think that it's their responsibility to babysit Stanley Park, quite frankly. They're understaffed, yeah. they're underfunded, they're pulled in a million directions. And with the, you know, the fire ban, um, you know, happening and with multiple incidents in the lower mainland and different things going on, it really becomes imperative that the parks board become engaged and the parks board is addressing enforcement at the municipal level. And we haven't seen that happen to date. Yep. And on July 16, we sent another open letter to the park board commissioners more or less outlining our original letter from January and stating that, you know, the park board has to take a leadership role because we are seeing the results of an unwell ecosystem. And I think that is an element of this that is not being discussed in the current media or even just in the social media shares is everyone is looking at this because of the coyotes, but the coyotes are just one part of the ecosystem of this park that is responding. Um, and the importance of looking at this holistically has been there all along in, in our communication and in other communication, but simply has not been the active result, as you said, of the park board that we've seen. And I, I think until late August, early September, um, when Flynnrod announced they were going to be killing, I think I had heard one comment from a park board commissioner in the media up until that final like one week run where the media started focusing on it again. And from a communications point of view, that's a problem. Um, you know, they just weren't visible to the community. Uh, so I think then you do have a lot of people saying, well, BCCOS, you need to do something. But the BCCOS is saying, well, that's not our job. It's not what we do. And it ended up being this almost cyclical finger pointing uh, situation. It was really frustrating. And, and I think it also the lack of information there's well there's almost two issues happening and i think you might i've discussed this so we've got the the situation related to sort of you know public safety what to do with the coyotes people are being bit and then you've got this other situation that's just a straight up communications issue it's about messaging it's about consistency and messaging messaging from different yes. levels of government and even within the activist community messaging so, you know, and I can't even tell you the number of petitions I've read that are frankly completely inaccurate or misrepresentations about who is doing the killing or how the killing is being done. Um, and, and so there is a bit of a communications crisis, I believe, and how this issue is being represented and talked about, which we really need to get a handle on quickly. <laughs> Yes, and that's something that came up uh, that we have talked about and came up in our, our numerous media conversations about this um, is the lack of information that was available to people regarding this situation. And one of the final incidents that occurred was a young boy who was bit after visiting the aquarium, I believe. His mother, who's from Calgary, said, I had no idea. There was no signs on the park as we came in. I should have done more research. And I, I double-checked this because I had done so a few days earlier. I went back and looked again, and the Park Board website, City of Vancouver website, and the city's Stanley Park website had no information about coyotes biting, about trail closures, about feeding, or any new useful information in this regard. So even if people were looking to be actively participatory in you know, avoiding certain areas or not going to the park, that information just wasn't there. The only post I saw from a government agency was the BCCOS telling people not to go to the park. And I can really attest to that. So in August, um, I went to Stanley Park myself. I hadn't been there in a while. And I, I was driving down Georgia, so which is one of the main entrances into the park. And I was fully expecting a large sign, even a billboard, I don't know, but some type of large presence of hay warning coyotes right at the entrance of the park. And I didn't see that. And then I remember being mindful of the time. And in my head, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, I wonder how long it's going to take me to see a sign. And driving through the park, and it's quite extensive, it's a very large park. And it, it I was in the car for about 10 minutes driving. Uh, before I saw one sign 
to do with coyotes. And again, yeah. I, I, I was sort of expecting at those points of entry, there would be something and there wasn't. And, and that really bothered me. And then when you did see the signs, it was very apparent that they're English based. Um, Vancouver is a very multi multicultural city. Uh, we have a lot of tourism during the summer and people from all over the place and even just young children or different, you know, abilities where English isn't always so easy for everybody. And, and the amount of text as well, and even the language yeah. and some of the jargon within that text. So even if you can read it, you don't want to, because it's just so overwhelming and goes on and on and on. And, and it, it's a real turnoff. And so the signs were a real missed opportunity for me. I think if they were more graphic based, you know, some kind of imagery where it was really apparent, you know, coyotes live here, don't feed them, don't touch them, don't, you know, get close to them. If there's ways to express that, that are, again, quick, easy to understand um, people from all abilities, young children, you know, I, I have to believe there's a way to tighten up our communications. And um, again, that was just such a missed opportunity. And I agree with you, just, information on the website, social media, it was, it was hard to find and it really shouldn't have been. Yeah. And again, that makes you think how much, at what point could this still have been preventable um, is the question that I keep coming back to. And it is endlessly frustrating too, in some of these circumstances, because I think, well, what if people had better paid attention to the trail closures when those were done? And I then saw pictures of the trail closures on Twitter and I am a runner. I cycle, I've got a whole bunch of routes I'll go on. And I've talked about this with other runners. All of us agreed that if I'm on my regular route and there's a wooden barrier with no information, I'm going right past that barrier because my presumption is it's there to prevent vehicle traffic. It's not, Hey, there are animals here who are behaving abnormally and you are creating a risk for yourself and them by being here. Yeah, absolutely. And that was really evident too, when you, you were in Stanley Park, you know, they've got barriers and closures and there's tape and, and some of them, there would be a sign others, there wouldn't be a sign. So there's no context. And then many of them, it was in a state of kind of disrepair where people clearly had ripped the tape down or moved it to the side, or you could watch, you know, families with strollers, like go around the corner. Yeah. And so these were barriers were really ineffective and they weren't monitored. There was no enforcement within the park, no boots on the ground. Um, and contrastly, when you think of right now, this call going on, when you see the media clips of the fence that they're bringing in, this massive yeah. metal 10 foot high fence grid all around the park. And I'm thinking now you bring that in, like that would have been really helpful months ago when we were trying to keep people out of specific areas or keep people off specific trails, why would, why didn't we bring that fence in? Um, and only now, of course, in the 11th hour where, you know, they're, they're killing the coyotes, does that type of barricade come into play? So that, that's a little bit frustrating. Going back to, you know, prevention, we had mentioned the garbage cans and as it relates to communication, I wanted to get the point in that there's also nonverbal communication and we need to think about that. Oh, yeah. And so for me, when I am in Stanley park and I see those open garbage cans, the message is we don't really take feeding wildlife seriously, right? When there's an open can like that and you can actively watch raccoons go in and out of the garbage cans, mice and rats in and out of the garbage cans, you know, crows and birds picking garbage off the garbage can. Um, that all sends a message too. And while it's not written down in a sign, it sends a message. And so for consistency, it's really important to have signs that say don't feed wildlife, but we also have to show that we don't feed wildlife. And we show yes. that by having wildlife resistant garbage containers. And again, it forces people to kind of think about that. And it, it's that nonverbal cue that again, sort of creates a culture within the park about what's acceptable and what's not. In talking with the experts, there were several influences behind this, and it's a very nuanced, complex, ecological situation. Um, we have often heard then conversations simplified to it's about feeding. And while feeding is certainly a driving role, there are these many other issues with longstanding questions that I don't expect we're going to have answers to immediately. But 
specifically regarding the feeding, I found it interesting that people then resisted. And, and those who follow our work closely may be familiar with the individual who was clamoring for evidence of feeding. Um, and it, it's it, it's difficult because it's not something that you readily have photos of, but you go to Twitter and you see photos of just piles of food. Uh, you experienced seeing feeding and reporting it, and that's why there's very little information on that because it's an active investigation. But it's I, I, I feel there is a disconnect still that feeding led to a lot of these issues, or at the very least accelerated a lot of these other issues uh, into the situation we're in. And th this idea that feeding is positive um, really needs to be addressed, I think, uh, clearly. It's something that at the Fur Bears we have actively been doing for years now, but we now, I think, have the final example of when we feed, when we disrupt these ecosystems these ways and we don't pay attention to what the science is telling us, there is a negative outcome. Um, and it's it's a difficult Again, it's a difficult conversation because it can be nuanced, but on the base of it, it is don't feed the wildlife and allow wildlife to be wild, uh, which is difficult for those of us who are intense animal lovers. Absolutely. You know, the, the feeding issue can be contentious sometimes, and, and we've received pushback, you know, from even within our own support base where people believe animals are starving. Um, there's people who just enjoy that experience, you know, getting close up and, you know, food symbolizes sort of love and comfort and, and having those sort of interactions can feel really special and make people feel really special, but it, it's all not real though. And, and it's hard sometimes to really have that sense of self-control because you know, we do love animals so much and we want to have all these positive interactions, but it, it, it's a short-term, long-term thing and, and long-term it can lead to all these terrible consequences. And so what might seem really benign, you know, I have a couple extra peanuts and I give them to a squirrel. What's the big deal? The problem though is, is that it, it's all accumulative and that other people are yeah. doing the same thing and more people are doing the same thing. And over a period of time, you really start to influence and change behaviors of animals. And that's so evident in that park. Many animals, the wild animals are really actively approach people. I was approached by raccoons. I was approached by squirrels. Um, I didn't see any coyotes, but certainly I'm very aware that no doubt they're around. Um, but it, 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 it alters behavior. And, and, you know, when I think of Stanley Park, it's it really is the crown jewel of Vancouver. It's true when people say that. If you've been there, it's quite majestic and it's huge. It's arguably the same size as the city itself. And so it it's not lost on me when I'm in Vancouver that I'm a guest in someone else's home, or at least that's sort of how I feel. Uh, and as you know, when we are a guest, you mind your manners and you know, you don't leave a mess and there's a certain kind of behavior, I think, that is required. And unfortunately, I think for some individuals, they've behaved really poorly and they've been allowed to behave poorly. And so the blame yeah. for me falls on, you know, this, this poor behavior and that there's people who perhaps didn't act in a respectful manner. And then, of course, it went unchecked. And, um, now we're in a situation where we actively need government to take an interest. We, we need government to, to assert itself and start to have enforcement. We, we really, I think moving forward, probably one of the most important things is going to be enforcement. We need tools. Yeah. So we need the signs, we need the bylaws, we need the tools. But unless those tools stick, and unless we build in incentives or consequences, my concern is, is that they'll fall flat and the situation will repeat itself. But, but having boots on the ground, eyes and ears, people paying attention um, to change the culture that is currently in that park and culture within the people of how we behave in that park. And uh, there's a lot going on. There is a lot going on there. And in the days leading up to this announcement, I think the the world saw this as out of nowhere, this started happening. And what can we do? Why can't we stop this? 
And I'm going to summarize um, very briefly. I am aware uh, you worked through, I think, two weekends every evening, have spoken with a half a dozen attorneys, a half a dozen biologists, probably half the staff in every agency now that's involved. And uh, between the two of us, there's been a total of about nine hours of sleep, I think, um, as this was sort of this, this unfolded. And for me personally, one of the greatest frustrations has been the why isn't anyone doing anything mentality when we have been, you know, so to speak, banging the cage for the last year almost trying to get those involved to take a different approach. Um, and I, I, I don't say that in any way to try and make us sound good or to make anyone feel bad, but to simply contextualize that this was not something that just happened. It took many, many years, presumably, for a lot of this. And I can even just in preparing for our conversation and pulling up articles I've written, I came across one from 2015 in which a uh, biologist, um, uh, Nick Page, wrote, the deer, uh, deer had crossed the streets outside of the south end of Lionsgate Bridge um, and was hit by a vehicle because people had been feeding this deer so often that they were just taking all kinds of risks to get to the food that they normally wouldn't. And they become so used to this expectation that they stopped paying attention to danger. And this was in 2015. So the idea of feeding in and around Stanley Park is not new. And the consequences were, were well known ahead of time. Um, and now we very much have to look at preventing this from happening again. And I think now that people are paying attention, there is this opportunity for, okay, Parks Board, if you feel you don't have the tools, what tools do you need in order to get this? And I can't help but wonder if there had been those conversations transparently when we first started asking questions, those tools could have been put in place or there were opportunities. Um, so I don't know that there's a question in that so much as that statement of, you know, we, we really do need to be asking the hard questions now of why didn't it happen then? And what are you going to do to make sure it does happen now? And a huge, huge, huge part of that, as you've noted, is the enforcement. Yeah. Bottom line, we see that across the board with a lot of these issues, I think. I think part of it is the finger pointing. And to be honest, I'm, mm. I'm getting a little tired of it. And, you know, it, because Stanley Park is really complicated and it involves a lot of different jurisdictions, it's really easy and tempting for public officials to kind of point the other way. In this situation, though, again, it, it really is an operations problem, right? There's There's several things that need to get sorted out in that park. And so while the, certainly the province has a responsibility with the so-called wildlife management component, again, the operations fall squarely on the park board. And, and so for me, I think that's where the bulk of it lies. Um, you know, it, it's, I think one of the hardest parts about our work and the hardest parts about, you know, when, when you're sort of an advocate for animals is political will. And that you can do all the right things. You know, you can write letters, you can make phone calls, you can have meetings, you can do petitions, you can send postcards, you can do events, you can, um, you know, make donations, you can, you know, everybody works re really hard and, and all the tools in the toolbox and you do that and nothing happens. And it's because we can't force political will that at some point, somewhere, someone needs to care. Mm -hmm. And if they don't care, then nothing gets done. And, and it's really hard to manufacture that somehow. I mean, I think some people, that's why people get frustrated and start to threaten people, quite frankly, right? It's yes. just a sense of inaction and they start losing all sensibility and, you know, threats and violence and that type of a thing, which doesn't work either. Um, but again, just this, this, just wanting so desperately to have that public engagement, wanting desperately to connect in a meaningful way with public officials to create a sense of political will. And with animal issues, I, I'm often left feeling like animals are not a priority, that um, as long as we can kill or relocate our way out of these issues, then there's no real incentive for people to create change or to look at ourselves or to 
really work hard to change laws or really put ourselves out there. Because at the end of the day, I think there's this sort of in the back of our heads that, well, we can just get rid of them. And as long as that's on the table, and as long as that is socially acceptable, then in some sense, sense I think it becomes this default. And, mm -hmm. and it starts to make me uncomfortable because I think there are times where we need to take that off the table and we need to recognize we can't keep trying to kill our way out of these situations. We've been doing that since the beginning of time. It doesn't work. And to compound the problem, you know, I, I, my mind goes to forest fires, it goes to the climate crisis, it goes to the rates of, of extinction. And so it, it really sets us up to fail because it, it devalues our relationship with the natural world, it disconnects us completely. And it, in fact, it creates this competition of sorts where it's us versus them. Yeah. And it's through that lens though, that we'll never solve anything because we are a part of nature. And I think the answer is reconnecting ourselves to nature and taking responsibility and approaching it with a stewardship mindset. And we take it very seriously. And, and there's competing interests there, though, with money, business, jobs, mm -hmm. resource extraction, um, which is fine. <laughs> Those are real concerns, too. You know, public safety is another big one. But in those relationships how can we find a better balance rather than just this us them competition because when it's that animals will always lose they always will to our detriment yeah i think that's very true and that's where we can also speak to some of the science um you know a lot of people talking about uh well and i think this this ties into the social media slash online petition aspect you you, you sort of very quickly mentioned and we can get a little more into now but it is so easy for information to be out in the world and then just repeated. And the problem is uh, with that accessibility, there's no responsibility for it. Um, you and I, I both, I, we both come from places where there is that responsibility. And I think that's reflective in everything the fur bears does. But, you know, the idea that coyotes are invasive in BC, that uh, the BC COS is the one who is doing all of this, that, um, you know, well, no, it, everything's fine. Just ignore it. Like there, there's some of these levels of information that are out there and they're just not true. And that becomes a bigger problem. Then, uh, there was an article in the Ottawa citizen and I wrote to the journalist and asked for a correction and have no idea if they actually did, but they said that the BC conservation officer service is responsible for wildlife in Stanley park. It's no, they're, they're, they're just not, that's wrong. Just outright. Um, but it's harder to correct that when that information is being perpetuated through petitions that are shared thousands of times and social media comments that are reposted and retweeted or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, yeah. I think that's, we, we put a lot of effort into having content on our site and our channels specifically related to that, but it is a challenge. It is. You mentioned coyotes are invasive and maybe we spent mm. a minute or two on that because I've heard that come up a few times as well. And so one of the rationales behind the call and, and people who are supporting the call is the notion that coyotes don't belong here. They're not uh, native to Stanley Park. They're invasive. Uh, the park is for people. Um, we need to kill all the coyotes. Mike, do you mm -hmm. want to respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> it's, it's hard because it's so many different things, but I think it's, it's we have to take this concept of invasive species and really look at it because it is being used the way we talk about zebra mussels in the Great Lakes uh, and situations like that where an outside organism has taken hold in an ecosystem in which they don't belong and have massively negatively influenced that ecosystem. Whereas when we look at coyotes, particularly in, well, in North America, uh, but particularly in the Northwest, it's fascinating because there has been a systemic war against coyotes for over 300 years, and we can't forget that. So when we have this conversation about the fact that coyotes are, quote, invasive, it's, well, they, they migrated. Yes, they expanded their range, but that is in response to what we were doing. It wasn't just them showing up and moving around. It's because we removed 
all other predators from the landscape, which allowed that vacuum to exist. We changed the landscape to make it more ideal for coyotes. And when we start talking about coexistence, that's one of the first things we look at is, have we created a situation that benefits the wildlife that we're having some issues with? Coyotes are responding to the ecosystems we create for them. That is what I hear from all of the experts. And if we want to have a conversation about where coyotes are, why, and how they behave, we have to step back and not talk about coyotes, but talk about ecosystems as a whole. And that is one of the largest problems we have in general in talking about coexistence. And as you pointed out, and we often say uh, between the two of us, the second you open your door, you're in nature. And that is a huge part of the mindset that needs to be shifted here moving forward for all of these issues um, is that there are these massive ecosystems and we are part of them right. not controlling them yeah it's 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 such an awful situation and and i think gives me a lot of anxiety i think and and grief as well sometimes anger i don't know that i've got to anger quite yet but as i imagine a lot of the listeners right now many of them no doubt are angry um and I, and I think for me, I sort of look at it from the perspective of, you know, certainly as, as an animal advocacy group, I think we need to say sometimes that because we're an animal advocacy group, it doesn't mean we don't care about people. And so, again, when talking about misinformation, one of the things that, you know, gets going is, oh, yeah, you're just going to let people get attacked. You're going to, you think that that's okay. And of course not, of course not. No people getting attacked in bit is not okay. And that's not coexistence. And arguably that's not coyote. That's not what coyotes do. That's not who they are. Uh, coyotes are very shy. Uh, they tend to keep their distance. Um, you know, they're playful. They're, they can be family oriented. They're, um, they're not, aggressive and they, they don't do this. They don't act like this. Something is really, really wrong um, that caused them to behave this way. And so I, I feel really awful for these people, the people who, who were bit or attacked or who even witnessed those situations to have such an unfortunate encounter with such a beautiful animal and um, have that be their experience. And, and I feel awful for that. I feel awful that that happened. That shouldn't have happened. It's wrong and it's terrible. And then I also feel bad, you know, of course, for the animals now that are being trapped and killed. But, you know, again, it's, it's our position. This was preventable. We had known about it. Officials knew about it, um, that we didn't take aggressive action soon enough to prevent this from happening. And I'm really sad about just the breakdown in the government process. You know, again, how does this happen? Why is there no political will? Um, and I do have concerns moving forward about where does this leave us? What are the implications for the future as it relates to maybe other animals, raccoons, for example? Um, you know, we know people are feeding raccoons and raccoons can also become aggressive. Um, for that matter, Canada geese. I mean, you know, it, it sets a terrible precedent is what it does. And it, it, seemingly doesn't really provide an answer either in that unless we get a handle on what happened we're going to find ourselves back in in this exact same position a year from now having this exact same conversation and so for all those reasons i do have a bit of a nod in my tummy these days and and how you you know we untangle that and and arguably how we need to work together to, to find the common common interests. And it's there. I think most reasonable people would say, of course, we need to protect public safety. And of course, animals shouldn't be culled, you know, and yeah. that, that makes room for coexistence. So how do we get there then? How can we have a beautiful park that is enjoyed by both people and animals? Um, because we're not going to sterilize the park. So let's just start yes. there. That's not reasonable. <laughs> and well, and I think too, in terms of people talking about coals, one of the other things is, oh, well, you go in and remove them and then the problem is solved. No, 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 it's not. Because A, more coyotes will come back. That is prime land for a coyote family, um, right? And they're talking about coexistence. As I said, one of the things we look at is have we created an ecosystem in which they'll thrive? And the answer is yes, we have. Um, that is great coyote area, just like it's great raccoon territory and duck territory and chipmunk territory. Um, 
So when we talk about those culls, it's, well, it's not going to stop it because you're going to get more wildlife and it will have to happen every year forever to keep it from even arguably twice or three times a year to be effective. Uh, And I don't think anyone, regardless of their political stance, their view on wildlife or, or culls at all, are willing to say, yes, this is a, a reasonable solution going forward. For no other reason, just expense. It's very expensive yeah. to maintain calls and, and, and it requires a, yeah, a lot of staff time and resources. So that doesn't make sense just from a cost you know, perspective. We do know that the permit is for 35 coyotes or up to 35 coyotes to be removed, though we don't think there are that many, let alone that many to be removed or killed. Um, and what we're focused on at this point very much is the moving forward. So we're going to be doing, I think, two avenues here. One is really pushing forward. And again, just going back over what we've been saying, what the experts have been saying, which is we've got to get in there and fix the feeding, find out what else is going on and implement solutions that focus on people, because that's what we have the most control over. And I think the other element of it though, and this is something specific to the fur bears, is we're going to be looking back and trying to build up our information to understand as fully as we can, what broke down and where, who knew what and when, so we can identify the faults in this this giant ugly machine that allowed this to happen. because again, it's just, it is so large and complicated, but some of it is also very straightforward. And that is some of the messaging we've talked about. What do we want our listeners to do? I, I mean, I think right now there is a whole lot of ideas out there. There's a lot, we were getting emails and tweets and messages nonstop. And thank you everyone for including us. Uh, we appreciate that. Though in reality, I don't think I, I, I have seen anything come in that we have not looked at earnestly at this point. Um, so where would be where would the best place to take this energy for supporters, for people who, who are upset about this and place it in terms of moving forward? Yeah, I think definitely political engagement comes to the top of mind for me. Um, and while that can be somewhat frustrating, that is where it's most appropriate, you know, you, you go to the decision makers and in this case, the decision makers would be the Ministry of Forest Lands, Natural Resource Operations and Rural Development. So that's uh, Flynnrod. And then of course, after that, you would have the Parks Board, Vancouver Parks Board. And so there is information on our website with their contact information and how to get a hold of them. Um, the call is uh, not being conducted by the BC Conservation Officer Service. That is incorrect. So uh, again, we encourage people to direct their communications to the Ministry of Flinrow and then uh, the Parks Board. There is also information on our website related to wildlife feeding. And so we're encouraging our supporters, of course, not to feed wildlife but also encouraging people to report wildlife feeding. And so that's something you can do is just be really mindful of who's around you. And um, if you do see something, say something, you know, take photos, videos, write it down, note the time of day, the location, date, any details you can think of or or note of and and pass that on. You can report wildlife feeding to 311, that's in Vancouver. And then um, also you can report it to the BC Conservation uh, Officer Service as well, um, particularly if you see someone yes. feeding a coyote. And those numbers are all available, as Leslie mentioned, at thefurbears.com, and they'll be in the show notes as well for folks looking for that quickly. A note on that, though, is I would encourage if you do see someone feeding and, and you do want to document, be mindful of your own safety as well, because it, it is always important to document and it is always important to report but there is also potential conflict between people that can arise and your safety does matter so if you are uncomfortable you can walk away and report that's always an option too um i think it's important too to thank all of our supporters through all of this um it's been very difficult this has been an emotionally Uh, traumatizing period for all of us. I know for certain. That's why coming up after this interview, you'll hear me talking with uh, Stephanie McMahon, who is a psychotherapist I know who also is involved with wildlife rehabilitation and is very knowledgeable both about being an activist and about grief and self-care and so on. So 
If you'd like to hear more about that, just wait a few minutes and it'll just start playing for you. Um, but genuinely, thank you. I mean, the messages we're getting, the support we're seeing, um, you know, there are celebrities tweeting it out too, but it's, it's the people listening to this podcast, reading our articles, sharing the positive content and actively communicating with their elected officials. I think it's just, it means so much. It's really great. And now more than ever. And, and so, yeah, again, thank you very much, everyone. And thank you for also being polite. Um, I think that's that's really important. You know, these situations sometimes can bring out the worst in us, and you know, it can be really emotional. And uh, sometimes those emotions get conveyed in emails or on Twitter, or you know, you just gets thrown out there, and it becomes really destructive sometimes. You know, when when we communicate in a way like that to public officials because they shut down, or sometimes it can also result in investigations. So many of those, particularly saved and then you know depending on if there were any threats then they have to be investigated and that can pull resources away from where we need them and so it's really important to as much as possible maintain our cool and and um you know certainly be assertive and and you know make sure make sure that you stay true to yourself but if there's a way to do it where you know we we maintain um our decorum <laughs> there you go we maintain decorum that's the polite way of saying it i think uh, but also one other thing that we haven't announced anywhere yet but i believe we are going to go ahead with is tag we want people to grieve with us we want to make this a thing where we can all talk about it and share our stories of coyotes in beautiful ways so we're encouraging folks to go online go on your social media or, or break out your craft your arts whatever it is you do and tell a story about coyotes that's true to you and your experience. I mean, I I think about my early experiences being with Leslie Sampson of Coyote Watch Canada and doing an investigation while dressed wildly inappropriately for it because I was a journalist and hearing coyotes and doing a coyote release and things like that and just how magical that can be. And we'd love for you to share that so that through all of this, people remember who coyotes truly are. All you have to do is create and tag us. We're at Fur Bears on Twitter and Instagram and Fur Free on uh, uh, Facebook.com slash Fur Free. You can also then get us at info at thefurbears.com. And again, all of this is linked in the show notes. That'd be great. I'd love to see beautiful photos and even, yeah, art sketches, illustrations. Um, I remember I visited once Critter Care Wildlife Rehabilitation Center in Langley uh, who had a litter of coyote pups and you know from a very very safe distance because you don't want to have any kind of imprinting or get close to them when they're really little mm -hmm. but how fun was that <laughs> was to see a little <laughs> gaggle of i believe there are four or five coyote pups and i'd never seen a coyote pup before and they look just like domestic dogs the only difference though is their yep. ears are much much larger and so it's just that little clue where Mm, <laughs> something's a little different about yeah. you <laughs> um but these these giant ears they look like two little samosas on the, on the top, of, top of their heads <laughs> and um so playful and fun and fuzzy and um you know certainly they were there under sad circumstance their their mom had uh had been killed but um yeah they got a second chance and were released and so that was a really fun experience and that's what i remember about coyote and um, and of course, all the stories from Leslie Sampson of Coyote Watch Canada, just how she talks about Coyote as the song dog and um, all their kind of magic and mystery. So we're going to talk a little bit about grief. And I think the question to start with is one that may be hard to really accept. And that is, is this a situation for folks that requires grief? You know, a lot of people weren't on the ground or aren't on the ground and don't have a direct connection to what's happening in Stanley Park but there is still a significant emotional response. So can you say like, is grief a reasonable response for animal lovers and advocates in as this event occurs? Of course, right? It's animal lovers like animals and animals lives are being mm -hmm. lost right now. That in and of itself, just that knowledge, you don't have to be there, but that knowledge is enough to warrant a grief response. And I guess, what is a grief response? And, uh, you know, I, I recently went through this with the loss of my father and learned a lot about grief in a very short period of time, because uh, that's how I deal with things in a healthy, emotional way. And 
it, it seemed to me that it is a very broad concept. It's not just like feeling sad for a day or feeling down for a bit. It, it is a full bodied, emotional, full scale response to things. Mm -hmm. And it's often unexpected. Yep. You know what happens at these times where you're not really in a position to feel all the feelings. So it's sometimes uncomfortable, sometimes super inconvenient. Um, sometimes it doesn't even feel like grief. So um, denial, anger, right? Like sadness is kind of the one that comes up most often. Um, but also anger is not always recognized as a source of grief. So you might have some animal advocates that appear to be a lot more angry um, than they normally would be. It's not really in their personality type, some of them. Um, I mean, you have, you have people who are angry all the time and then there's people who, you know, it's out of character for them a little bit. So, you know, if you're recognizing that in some of the advocates or animal lovers, it could be some of that anger is actually grief. And I think that makes sense. As I said, what I found to be true is that, and, and I've never experienced anything like this that I'm aware of, feeling both angry, sad, and longing at the exact same time, which is a really unusual convergence of different emotions that don't necessarily go together. But my understanding is that is a very normal part of the grieving process. Yeah, it's normal. And a lot of people might find themselves kind of in a state of denial too. Like, oh, you know, I don't know why I feel this way. I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. This never happened. This isn't going to happen. Somebody will stop it, right? Like there, there might be some other emotions that come up and these deep feelings that do come up, the ones that you're talking about of the, the longing and the loss and feeling the sense of deep sadness, that's normal. People don't like them. People don't like these feelings because yes. they're uncomfortable. Um, but they're not bad. They're normal reactions to loss. And I think that there's a lot of people losing something right now. Yeah, it is. It's a very, it is very simply put a tragic circumstance that is happening right now. It's then, okay, so we're feeling grief. What do we do with it? I mean, in my mind, I feel an emotion and my immediate response is how do I do something with this in order to activate it and allow it to go away? And I think I know the answer to mm -hmm. this and don't like it, but we all need to hear it nonetheless. <laughs> right. So yeah, your, your first instinct is kind of make it go away, mm -hmm. make it stop, fix it. Yeah. Um, people have, have a lot of ways of doing that. Not always the healthiest ways. Um, creating that space that allows you to be sad, but supported. Um, so if you are part of a community, right, reaching out to the community, um, there's other people who feel the same way that you are feeling, connecting with them is important. Um, sitting it, allowing yourself to be sad, yeah. right? And like I said, it's uncomfortable, but it's not wrong. Some ways that people might try to cope with it is kind of numb it, right? So some people will um, use alcohol or drugs to just numb it away. Mm -hmm. um, it might decrease it, but it's not going to fix it. And it's not going to move it through and allow you to heal from it. Um, so it's probably not the best way to go about it. Well, and I, I mean, personally, I am a, a strong proponent of talk therapy. Uh, I, as a note, Steph is not my therapist, but is a therapist. Um, uh, I have found that talking about it in that way of just say, like, listing what I'm feeling when I was feeling it, uh, writing it down even in the moment and then later reflecting on it and talking about it in that way was likely one of the biggest helps to me in processing that specific grief, but other grief and other large emotional responses I have um, through my life is that just, I'm going to talk. Uh, as people may know, I enjoy talking. And it is a way for me to sort of take all of that noise that comes from the big emotions and the repetition of them and put them external to myself. And that for me, at least, has given me access to time for healing through some of these processes. Is, is that one of the tools available? Is, is just talking it out with people? So talking it out is one way. Um, it doesn't have to be with a therapist specifically. Mm -hmm. Of course, it helps if you have a therapist that you can kind of bounce ideas back and forth off of, process it. 
get some validation of like, okay, you're not going crazy. This is normal. Um, but if you have just anyone to talk about things with, then it's helpful if, if that relationship is supportive. Um, other ways that you talk about, right? Like writing things down, learning about things, processing. Some people will write songs. Some people write poetry. Some people just, you know, word vomit in a journal. Totally fine, right? Just getting it all out. Um, activists specifically like to take their emotions and create action with it. That's why, you know, activism exists is everybody mm -hmm. kind of puts things into motion. But if you're always using your emotions to fuel yourself forward, there's no time to recharge. So sometimes yeah. just sitting with those feelings and, you know, taking it as it comes is, is an important part of activism too, right? So resting when you need to rest so that you're ready when you need to kind of come back and do the hard work. Well, and I also, uh, you know, I was joking before we started recording that it's non-athlete to always use sports metaphors, and I'm going to use more sports metaphors, but I often have the vision uh, uh, or the imagery of the boxer who is down on their hands and knees and just needs to get up and get to the corner and take that 30 seconds or 60 seconds to breathe and then stand up and get through the rest of it. Um, for me, that is often the the imagery I have of my emotional state as I go through some of these these traumatic experiences or these tragedies. And it is hard to express sometimes, I think, to folks that like that's that's normal. Like I physically feel beat up by some of this <laughs> because it is such an emotional intensity to it. Uh, and recognizing that means I need to give my body time to heal from it as well as my mind. Uh, and then, you know, it, for me, it's leaning into a routine often is very helpful. But I think just having that insight and giving yourself the space and giving yourself the time and being patient, which is sometimes the hardest thing we can do as humans. Uh, are, are there any, no one, and again, I guess it's sort of no one factors about grief in terms of um, it takes as long as it takes, or there's specific timelines. Cause you know, you hear about the seven steps of grief and, and things like this. There's seven steps, five steps, depending on what psychology kind of theory you want to use. Um, it takes as long as it takes and it's not straightforward. Yeah. So if I'm looking at like the five step approach, your denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, those don't all have to happen. One, two, three, four, five. And just because you kind of start one doesn't mean you stay there. You can go back and forth and ebb and flow between all these stages. And that's where these feelings get all mixed up because mm -hmm. it's not, you know, okay, I'm done step one. Now I can start step two and I have five, like three more to go. And then I'll feel better. Like yeah. you can't hard work your way out of feelings. Um, you have to create the conditions for feelings to be felt and heal. Well, and that's a fascinating way of putting it, is creating the conditions. And that's, again, I'm using my own personal experience here because it's easiest for reference points. But for me, when I'm then dealing with anger, and we were talking about anger as a big one, and I am not an angry person. I don't like being angry. I have a lot of defense mechanisms that are clearly built in to avoid anger. Um, so when I then do feel these overwhelming angry feelings, I now have a couple of tools I will use that I've developed that help me release of it, or at least break the surface tension of it. So, you know, there's screaming in a pillow or having a block of wood with some nails tapped into it that you can then just really drive those nails in after. Um, going for a run regular exercise helps, but in those moments, having just even that little bit of a release can then make it manageable again. Um, and I think for me, the hardest part is recognizing that in the moment, stepping away from the issue long enough to then do those things and then coming back to it. Uh, do you have any tips for people, generally speaking, on sort of identifying or having that insight and mindfulness into our own emotional state so that we can then say, I am feeling sad and I need time to feel sad, or I am angry and I need to put this anger somewhere? That's a good question. Um, part of it is building that self-awareness. I like to tell people, at least when I, they start coming to me for therapy is like, okay, well check in with yourself. How are you feeling? A lot of people yep. take their emotions as fact. And well, if I feel angry, there must be something for me to be angry about. Is it actually anger or is it not feeling heard? Is it, you know, is it something else going on feeling disrespected, right? Anger is a motivator to create change, but what is the change that needs to happen? Um, so recognizing when 
you're feeling something. Some people don't even have the space between the feeling and the reaction. And if you're one of those people that just Mm -hmm. reacts to every emotion that you feel, you're going to have a hard time. (laughs) So create that space. There's a pause. There's, you know, the stimulus and the reaction. There's a little bit of a space there. How do we utilize this space? First of it, first of all, you're going to want to recognize I'm feeling something. Yeah. What am I going to do with this? And that's often where a lot of healing starts is identifying that healing needs to start. And I I really appreciate you also pointing that there is no one way to do all of this. And I think that's a misnomer that can ultimately be harmful in these scenarios is, is some of the armchair, and I am very guilty of this, but armchair psychoanalyzing and reading a blog and deciding, all right, this is the thing I'm going to do. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And oh, well, Um, it is a process uh, that you sort of have to be a part of actively. Uh, I even went about it at one point and I made a a board with pushpins with feelings that will come up during the day because I have such a habit of compartmentalizing due to not the advocacy work, but it was journalism originally and crime reporting. Like you, you, you have to compartmentalize. It's the only way to get through those days. Mm The problem then is opening the lids of all those tiny little uh, compartments and saying, all right, guys, let's go. And uh, allowing it to wash over and overwhelm and sit and feel and be mindful uh, of all of it so that I can then start that process of healing. Right. And it's one thing to compartmentalize during the day and put all these feelings in little boxes so you can go about your day. Mm-hmm. Um the problem becomes, you know, you take this little box, you put it in the closet. If you don't go back and unpack that little box, you're gonna have a whole closet full of little boxes that you haven't dealt with. Yep. And at some point that gets full. Yes. Door opens and all the boxes fall out and there's a big mess. And that's a lot harder to deal with than taking out the little boxes at the end of every day and say, okay, how was my day actually? How do I, you know, process this day instead of 25 years of journalism? Yes. Yes, it, it, it adds up. I'll, I'll own that as I sit in the corner of a basement apartment all by myself. Um, but uh, it is something that I think having that insight on a daily basis does ultimately help, although we can then also get lost in it. So there's a degree of, and again, it's, it's balance. Ultimately, is what it all comes down to is trying to balance these different internal needs, I think, uh, with grief and with life in general. Um, Mm -hmm. and remembering too, that the grief, it'll go away for a week. And then I'm going to feel a pang of sadness. Um, you know, when, when my dad passed, it was a lengthy process that had a lot of elements to it, but ultimately what surprised me most is you, you grieve, it hits you, it hits you hard. You go through this process. And then three weeks later, a song comes on the radio and I have to pull over to the side of the road because I can't breathe or... Mm -hmm. Um, all of a sudden I'm angry and it's, rem- and it's having the insight to stop and think why and ask myself that question. And then, as you said, identify, I'm not just angry. I'm upset about something specific and my brain is going through the process of identifying. I can't now fix it. Um, and things like that. And it's the same when you, you know, when you lose a pet or a friend or there's significant unwanted change in life, such as a pandemic. Uh, I think a lot of that needs grief. Of course. And part of the process that is going to be extra complicating with, say, the Stanley Park scenario, um, it's kind of a disenfranchised grief from a society perspective. So, yes, you know, people are saying, you know, it's just some animals. Get over it. Yeah. Right. You don't you weren't even there. Why are you sad? Right. Like there's this whole idea of who's entitled to grief and who's not. Um, Yes. And that's not fair to people who are trying to process this, to have people around them say, this isn't even a big deal. Get over it. Yeah. Right? Like you were, you were entitled to feel sad and grieve when these things happen, despite society's expectations of what grief is and looks like and who you're allowed to grieve. For sure. And that's, and again, it's, it's, I, I think a huge element of what um, you know I've been talking about with people for the last week as we we sort of manage all of the elements of this 
is very much identifying there is no right or wrong with so many of the things that we deal with in the world uh, in terms of an emotional response, right? There's no proper way. There is no, this is the way we all see this thing and therefore the way we all feel is it is this massively colorful nuance and identifying that each of us are going to be a little bit different in every possible way. But there are some commonalities as we've talked about, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly in groups of people that then allow for us to come together um, and move forward. Yeah, and I think that's where the support aspect comes in. So I think I saw online, there's going to be a vigil. Yes. So somewhere that people can go and mourn and that will be accepted by the people who are partaking in it, um, who might not have that space Mm -hmm. in their daily lives because they might not have the interpersonal relationships with other advocates. It might all happen online. Yeah, for sure. I want, and then even in my case, I live and work alone. Like I, I, you know, personal life aside, I am physically and mentally by myself nine hours a day in that regard. And it requires an effort on my part to then say, I need to be around people. I need to have conversations with people and take those steps. And in times of grief or, or extreme emotion of any kind, that can be very difficult, I think. Um, mm-hmm. to, to Especially if you've been taught to hide it, oh, right? Yeah. You've been taught, oh, you know, take that emotion and go to your room with it, Yes, right? The, the, the natural instinct isn't going to be, oh, I feel really sad. Let me reach out to someone. Exactly. The instinct is going to be, I feel really sad. I need to isolate myself, but that's probably the worst thing you can do. If you're struggling with this situation and your emotions feel very large, please know the Canada Suicide Prevention Service is open 24-7, 365. They can be reached at 833-456-4566. You can also learn more at crisisservicescanada.ca. If you're a younger person, Kids Help Phone is an excellent free resource, and you can learn more about them at kidshelpphone.ca. This podcast is our hope to bring together a great deal of information for those who have been searching for it, and we hope we have accomplished that with this special report. I know there will always be more to say and better ways of saying it, but we we have done our best in an extremely difficult time. I want to thank you for listening. This has been an extremely difficult time for those of us at the Fur Bears and for many people who are animal lovers right across the world. Please take time to grieve, to to feel all of the, the emotions involved in this, whatever they may be. And if you need help, reach out for help. We will keep fighting for wildlife in Canada, and we will keep finding ways to protect them. But we can only do that with your support. Thank you for all you have done. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can contact us at thefurbears.com or find us on social media at Fur Bears on Twitter and Instagram, and the Fur Free Facebook page is facebook.com slash fur free. Thank you, and we'll be back soon.